0: The scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here at Christ City Kits. And um, over the next 10 weeks, Lord willing, um, 10 weeks, 10 months, I'm sorry. Over the next 10 months, Lord willing, we are going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. And as I said last week, this is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Now, I know you think i 'm the greatest preacher of the... no i wouldn 't even <laughs> that is blasphemy. Um, I, this is so important. We read through this in our community group uh, on uh, this week uh, the whole sermon and and just to hear uh, the way that Jesus teaches it it really takes your breath away when you linger in this sermon, so please be reading this sermon and and come eager to hear from Jesus as we Unpack this this amazing teaching um, uh, if you were not here last Sunday, can I encourage you to go to the website and go to the sermons tab there and maybe catch up by listening to the introductory sermon from last week there's some things there that I think are important um, before we jump in to the message this morning. Can I please invite you to bow your heads and hearts with me and let 's pray, Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the word made flesh and that he has come and drawn near and and he speaks. He has spoken your truth to our hearts. Would you do that work in our hearts this morning as I feebly attempt to, to explain and unpack and expound what he is saying here? Lord, help me. Help us, by your Spirit, to eagerly receive the Word. And and for your Word to do its work, its transformative work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we just heard the beginning of the Sermon read for us from Sarah. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, begins by describing what it means to be blessed. He describes for us what it means to be blessed. Now, interestingly, the word bless or blessed is actually fairly common in our culture. You know, we're all familiar, aren't we, with, with, you know, somebody says, bless you uh, after someone has sneezed. Or, you know, many of us are familiar with the way that every American politician finishes a speech... God bless you and God bless the United States of America. Sorry, Josh. Um, (laughs) Or any other American visitors that we have with us this morning. (laughs) Um, In a recent New York Times article, Jessica Bennett reflects on the way the word blessed is showing up these days all over social media. She writes, Calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposefully elicit envy. She concludes the overuse of the word has all but stripped it of its meaning. Now it's like strawberries are half price at Trader Joe's. I feel so blessed. <laughs> Here's the thing, when it comes to understanding these opening words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, can I encourage you, just ignore, completely ignore, uh, just put it out of your mind completely, the way our culture tends to talk about being blessed. That's not going to help us here. Jesus is not talking about feeling blessed because you got some great deal at the grocery store. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Rather, Jesus in this this opening beatitudes, these opening blessings, is addressing what is arguably the most important question That human beings have ever asked. That's what he's talking about. As he starts in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing for us the most important question that human beings have ever asked namely, how can we experience real flourishing? Or to put it differently, How can we find true and lasting happiness? Now, I'll explain the connection between being blessed and being happy later on. But right now, here's what I I want you to consider. I want to submit to you that all people everywhere, for all time, without exception, want to be happy. As Augustine put it rather humorously back in the 4th century, it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all people desire to be happy. But, as the 1st century philosopher Seneca observed, there is not anything in this world, perhaps, that is more talked of and less understood than the business of a happy life. It is every person's wish and design, and yet not one in a thousand knows wherein that happiness consists. We live, however, in a blind and eager pursuit of it. And the more haste we make in a wrong way, the further we are from our goal. Indeed. All of us, without exception, are living in this eager pursuit of happiness. That is what gets us up in the morning. That is what keeps us going. But as Seneca points out, we're blind. And we're heading in the wrong direction. You see, Seneca reached that conclusion. Seneca was not a Christian. Seneca reached that conclusion by just reflecting on the human condition. Now, in the 1950s, C.S. Lewis said something similar when he considered human history in light of what the Bible teaches. Here's what he wrote. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. See, every human being desires happiness. All of us. We all want to live satisfying and meaningful lives. But... Happiness is elusive. Lasting and true happiness is elusive. It, it's like a mist that you try and grab a hold of. And it's gone. Because, as Lewis said, we're seeking our happiness in something or many things other than God. Now, I would suggest to you that Jesus understood this universal desire that we have, as well as this universal frustration that we all feel. Jesus understood this. And that's why in Matthew 4.23, he sa- uh, it says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You see, through his preaching and his miracles, Jesus was announcing and demonstrating, that's what his miracles are about, he was announcing as well as demonstrating that the kingdom of God was breaking into this fallen frustrating, unhappy world. That's what the gospel of the kingdom is about. The kingdom of God is breaking into, in the person of Jesus, is breaking into this, this fallen, deeply frustrating, and profoundly unhappy world. You see, Jesus is the rightful king who has come into the the world to restore His reign in the lives of His people. By calling people to repent of their sin and follow Him, Jesus is not only calling them into His kingdom, He's inviting them to forsake all those futile sources of happiness that we've all been eagerly pursuing and to find our true and our lasting happiness in Him and Him alone. Now, with all that in mind, let's turn again to Matthew 5, 1 to 10. We need to hear these opening words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount again. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, these eight statements are known as the Beatitudes, which is just an old Latin word for the blessings. And here, what Jesus is doing... is He is giving us a vision of what life looks like in God's kingdom. That's what He's doing here. He's laying before us a vision, a glorious vision, of what life in God's kingdom looks like. He's describing a way for for us to be in the world that leads to true flourishing. That leads to true and lasting happiness. So let's take a closer look at this vision under two main points. First, the blessedness of being in the kingdom. And second, the characteristics of being in the kingdom. Let's begin with the blessedness of being in the kingdom. Take a look again at verse 3 and verse 10. In verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice there that he concludes both those statements by saying theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, by beginning these beatitudes and by ending these beatitudes in this way, It means that everything that Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes is framed in terms of the kingdom. Right? Remember what I said a moment ago. Jesus is the rightful king who has come to restore the reign of God in the lives of his people. So here in these Beatitudes, he's describing the blessedness Of being in the kingdom. Not outside of it. But being a participant in the kingdom of God. I'd like you to notice one other thing. In verse 3. And again in verse 10. Jesus says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's using the present tense. But. But. If you look at the six Beatitudes that are sandwiched between those two in verses 4 to 9, you'll notice that he uses the future tense. Look at verses 4 to 9. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. See, there's a tension here in this opening statement of Beatitudes. There's a tension here between the present and the future. That's what I want you to notice. Here's the thing. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are already in his kingdom. And we already have the salvation that he gives to everyone who trusts him. That's the already. But in another sense we do not yet experience the fullness of the kingdom or the fullness of our salvation. This is absolutely crucial for making sense, not just of the Sermon on the Mount, but of the whole New Testament. You see, ever since the the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, He has been ruling and reigning as the King of the universe. That's what Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, 18, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. That's quite a claim. But obviously, um, Jesus' reign over all things is not yet being fully experienced, right? Here's the way I would put it. Jesus, as he reigns with all authority, is permitting... This present evil age to continue. I use that phrase from Galatians 1 4. We're living, Galatians 1 4 says, in a present evil age, and Jesus, as he reigns over all things, permits that to continue. Now, you can ask me why later on. We can't get into it. There's there's very good reason why. Now, here's what I would say. As Christians who are already in the kingdom, but are awaiting its fullness as we live in this world, this present evil age, what we catch are glimpses. We catch flashes. We catch foretastes of the kingdom and its power and its glory breaking into the world. We get get glimpses. But we do not yet, and we will not yet, until the end of the age, see the kingdom come, thank you, in all of its glory and fullness. Excuse me. What a great kid. And that tension is why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. He taught us to pray in light of this. He said, Our Father in heaven, this is how he taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we are people as Christians. Christians are people who are praying for and longing for and looking for the coming, the fuller coming of the kingdom. And we ultimately, we await its fullness at the end of the age. But we pray, Lord may your kingdom come more into our lives and our church and our city and our neighborhoods and our problems. Here's one way of saying it. The kingdom is inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. And that leads us to consider the word blessed. As I said in my introduction, the overuse of this word has stripped it Of a lot of its meaning. And that's why I said we should just ignore what the culture is saying. But basically, the Greek word that is translated in our Bibles as blessed means happy. That's what it means. Happy. But the word happy, obviously, is fraught with all sorts of difficulties. Because we often, I would say, almost always associate the idea of being happy with some sort of emotional state or or the, the situation or circumstances. So, you know, I say to my kids, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's warm up. Let's go to the beach. And they're happy. Yeah, we get to go to the beach. Now, that's not happening today. So they're all sad. So I push back on that way of thinking about happiness by going deeper and saying, actually... Our desire for happiness, true and lasting happiness, is a universal desire. Every moral philosopher in the ancient world pondered this question deeply. But still, I would say the word happy doesn't quite cut it. So some Bible scholars suggest translating this word as flourishing. I like that word. I like the word flourishing. That's why I used it in my introduction. But it too, I think, can be associated with how I'm feeling in my health. I've been going to uh, the gym a lot lately. I'm feeling like I'm flourishing. Or maybe I'm getting a, a career advancement at work and, you know, things are really flourishing. So there's some associations there that don't help us either. So the question is, what should we do? Um, which word should we use? And, and how can we understand the word blessed in the way that Jesus wants us to understand it? Because ultimately that's what's most important, right? Well, I would suggest that we could, we could go through the entire Old Testament and understand the way the word blessed is used. That would help us a lot, but we don't have that kind of time this morning. So what I want to do for the sake of brevity is land on one psalm where this word shows up. In Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight... Is in the law of the Lord. And on his law. He meditates day and night. He is like a tree. Planted by streams of water. That yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf never withers. In all that he does. He prospers. You see. I love this. Because here we have the word. Blessed. We have. Happiness, He delights. And we have the idea of flourishing. In everything He does, He prospers. It's all right here. And it's all being used, these three words are being used together to describe a single person. Now, my choice of this particular psalm is not arbitrary. For as Jonathan Pennington and other scholars have pointed out, there are numerous... Literary and thematic links between Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, Psalm 1 is regarded as a wisdom psalm. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll discover that its, it's genre is really that of being wisdom. It's 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 like a kind of New Testament wisdom literature that Jesus is giving us, and so that is an interesting point of connection as well. So I think we should we're going to stick with the word blessed. All that to explain, we're just going to stick with the word blessed. <laughs> but but let me try and unpack or summarize rather. Um, the word blessed in the Bible, it speaks of God's covenant blessing on those who are in a right relationship with Him and a right relationship with others. So that's the basic idea. To be blessed is to to have on your life God's covenant blessing. To be in a right relationship with God and with others. The blessed person rests themselves, rests their hearts and their life in the grace of God and the faithfulness of God. And the blessed person accepts and trusts the promises of God. That's why the psalmist delights in the law of the Lord. He's trusting in all that God has promised. Now, if, if, if we understand this blessedness of being in the kingdom, I think this is freeing. It, it's, it's freeing us from being, um, being gripped by the, the, the deep frustrations and the fears that often plague us in our present situations. And in that way, it enables us to truly flourish. To live in a way that is, is free from, from all that would entangle us and, and all the insecurities and the frustrations and the fears that, that hold us back from living fully for God's glory. That's what blessed means. Let me just say here in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus is for you. He's not preaching the Sermon on the Mount to ruin your life. He's he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount to show you what your life can become. He is for us in this sermon. As we learn to humbly submit to His gracious rule and reign over all of our lives. Let's take a look again at those promises that Jesus makes in verses 4 to 9. And I want to tweak one word just to kind of uh, highlight or emphasize His points. Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, because they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they shall be called sons of God. See, here... This blessed person is able to live into this flourishing life that God has for them because he or she is living in light of those kingdom promises. Right? This is so important. We're living our lives in light of what Jesus has promised us. See, all that we will enjoy fully in the future... We need, by faith, to bring it into our present situations, our present circumstances, by trusting what Jesus has promised us. That's what it means to live in the kingdom. We will not flourish unless we trust what Jesus has told us will be ours fully one day. See, our future hope changes the way that we look at and experience our present circumstances, no matter what they may be. So those of us who are followers of Jesus here this morning, I think we need to ask ourselves this very important question. Do these future promises, these future promised blessings, do they mean more to me than my present comfort? I'm just going to let that sit there with you for a second. I mean this in all seriousness. Do these amazing... You will see God. (laughs) That's a bit of a promise. You'll receive mercy. You'll be satisfied. I mean, do these future promises that Jesus makes to us, His people... Do they matter more to us? Do they weigh more on our lives? Are they more important to us than our our present ideas, uh, our present ways in which we're trying to organize and control and and keep our lives nice and comfortable and stress-free? Because I think how we answer that question reveals a lot. For example, does the knowledge that I will inherit the earth, and that's exactly what Jesus means, does the knowledge that I will inherit the earth give me the kind of inner disposition, one might even say confidence, to be truly meek and humble in my present circumstances? Or do I have to kind of Push out my chest, and I'm going to get what's mine. You know, I'm not going to lose. I'm going to win here. See, that's that's the opposite. God's people are are humble and meek. Why? My inheritance is not here. I will inherit the earth. No matter what I have in this life, there's a very pra- I. I I won't get into it, but this is a very important verse. Or, an, here's another one. Does the knowledge that I will receive mercy, does that knowledge enable me to be merciful to people, well, to, to, to people that have harmed me and hated me? You see? This is practical. Practical. Do the promises of what we will receive in all of its fullness mean a whole lot more to me than my present little comforts? This is a diagnostic question of whether or not we're truly understanding and fully embracing this blessedness of the kingdom that Jesus is laying before us. That's my first point. I'm running out of time. Second point, it's it's never happened before. The characteristics of being in the kingdom. (laughs) Jesus' vision of the blessed life isn't merely a set of ideas or abstract ethical principles. It's It's about living in the world as those who belong to his kingdom. It's about living in a way that reflects our trust and our hope in his promises. So Jesus describes these people as those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So clearly here, Jesus is not describing an ideal life in an ideal world. Rather, this is what it looks like, I would suggest. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God really gets a hold of you. When you really embrace what it means to be in the kingdom see the kingdom transforms us the kingdom transforms us from the inside out and it leads us to be in the world not only to be blessed for ourselves but to be a blessing for everyone else around us even those who may harm us or hate us so my Furthermore, as Matthew shows in his gospel again and again, Jesus himself is the full embodiment of all these characteristics he's describing for us. Let me just give you a couple. Jesus mourns and grieves... In Matthew 23:37 he says, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing." Jesus is meek and humble. In Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is pure in heart. In Matthew 4, he's being tempted by Satan. He says, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. We could go down the whole list. Let me just close by saying or close this point by saying Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was condemned. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was crucified. And Jesus was killed all for the sake of righteousness. And that brings us to the question how do we enter this blessed life? How do we get in on what Jesus is talking about? And that brings me back to the beginning. Matthew 5.3 Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these characteristics that we've briefly looked at all of them meekness, mourning, purity of heart, merciful all these taken together describe the blessed person. But this one Poverty of spirit is really the most basic. That's why the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, there's two words in the New Testament for poor. One um, describes those who have very, very little. They have just the bare essentials. And then the other word describes people, we might say, who live in grinding poverty. These are the absolutely poor. They have nothing at all. Well, Jesus chooses the second word. And so we could perhaps rephrase this first beatitude by saying, Blessed are the destitute in spirit. See, the poor in spirit are those who know they have absolutely nothing to offer God. Does that describe you this morning? On your own, apart from God's grace, do you know that you have absolutely nothing whatsoever that might win God's approval and and, and, and make him just think that you're special. See, this sort of person comes before God in complete and utter dependence upon his mercy. See, Here's the truth. Despite every other approach, the Christian knows that on their own they are spiritually helpless. Absolutely spiritually helpless. So how do we cultivate this this poverty of spirit? That's a good question, I think. Well, let me just say, it's not by comparing yourself to others. That's, that's a complete waste of time. Rather, I don't think we can discover who we really are unless we see who we are before God. That's the only way. We can only discover our poverty of spirit if we take who God is really seriously. That's why the systematic theology course is so important. We're going to look at the doctrine of God in the Bible. It scares me how little uh, the, uh, the knowledge of what the Bible reveals about God and his attributes and his character we really have. Because if we really saw it, I think we would be more in touch with this poverty of spirit. For example, the prophet Isaiah discovered his own spiritual poverty when he saw a vision of the glory of God. You know this passage in Isaiah 6. Here's what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. These are angelic creatures. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Here's the moment of discovery Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. One translation is, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, to be poor in spirit means that we understand our spiritual poverty and our moral bankruptcy before the God of the universe. It means that we are absolutely dependent upon Him for everything, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for every provision, including the air that we breathe into our lungs. Let me close with what I think is a wonderful description of spiritual poverty from Augustus Toplady's famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Here it is. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the heart of those who are blessed. That's the heart of those who, are, who know that they are poor in spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you work into our hearts the knowledge of who we really are before you. You don't do that to ruin us, Lord. Yes, you do it to humble us. But when we discover who we really are before you, You don't walk away. You don't condemn. Rather, you forgive. You forgive because Jesus suffered in our place. You forgive because He was punished in our place for our sin. And you forgive all those who realize they are morally and spiritually bankrupt And you welcome them in. You gather them in. You love them with an everlasting love. Because that is who you are. Lord, help us to discover these things more deeply, more profoundly. And to walk more fully into this blessedness of being in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver,